Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Dictated is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas from my personal mobile studio, my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. This is episode 282 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, let's start out with a brief local weather report, because I'm so freaking stoked about the weather right now, guys. It is 64 degrees in Dallas-Fort Worth, slightly cloudy skies and it's going to be a high in the 70s today. I wish so much that I could turn this car around and go do some work in my garden. There's a lot of work to do to there. Maybe I'll talk about that a little bit today as well. I'll find some time to get some stuff in about that. But it is beautiful here. I hope it's beautiful where you are. And the rain has finally stopped too. Um, of course the big news today is I'm back from New York City uh, and my interview with the judge on Freedom Watch. I'll tell you about that in a second. Let's start out with our housekeeping number one, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. Uh, they do a lot to help support this show. And uh, again, they are all personal endorsements, personal recommendations. You do not become an advertiser on TSP just because you have a check in hand. You have to be approved by me, and then you have to be approved by my listener ad council. Uh, first advertiser of the day today is Sawtooth Tactical. Brand new advertiser just came on board with us. Um, looks like a great outfit. We couldn't find a single negative thing about them online, and trust me, folks, we look hard, and uh, they have a tremendous assortment. I think they're a great addition to the family here at TSP. Please check out their site. I know you're going to love it. Next, sponsor of the day is Ready Made Resources. I say this all the time, folks. You've got to download their solar catalog. It is absolutely awesome, the amount of information and, and parts and pieces and how you can see how things fit together there, and they have a great assortment of other materials as well. So please check out Ready Made Resources today as they are our sponsor of the day. Next, please consider getting involved in our forum. We have some great discussions going on, some great things going on. Lots of little regional events, a little meetup starting to get put together where people actually meet face-to-face. Forum is the place to make the connections there. Uh, specifically, look down under the individual regions under the local boards near the bottom of the forum. Last but not least, if you think this show is worth more than 20 cents an episode, if I impact your life in a positive way and help you live it better today, if nothing goes wrong at all, or tomorrow if something does go wrong, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, with that, let's get into the meat of today's show. Uh, let's start out with just a little review. I'm going to do listener questions today. And my first question actually ties right into my trip. But let me tell you a little bit about my trip up to meet Judge Napolitano and what it was like. And let me ask you to do something for me today as well. I need your help. You guys help me get on this show. Now I need your help on another level, and I want it to help Judge Napolitano too. Freedom Watch is a show done on foxnews.com out of the strategy room. It's not on uh, cable television yet. Judge is trying to get on there, and of course I want to go back and be involved with what he's doing. So the more views he gets online, the better. The more comments his videos get, the better. So I'm going to put a link into today's show notes. If you have 
haven't seen the interview yet, please go watch it. And please, in addition to watching it, comment. Thank them for having me on. Thank them for listening to you when you asked. Tell them they want more stuff like this. Now, let me talk about the whole experience a little bit, because I want to say one thing in their defense. Most of the people commenting either on our forum or over on their side are going, I wish you would have had more time. I wish you would have had more time. The judge does a 30-minute show every day, and they're in 10-minute segments. Each 10-minute segment has a guest. I got the same amount of time everybody else did, so it's not like they went short on me. They gave me a full interview segment like everybody else had. I was really happy to have it. Next is, people said I talked kind of fast. Well, I only had 10 minutes. So I absolutely wanted to nail every point that I could in those 10 minutes and give them a great interview. Your job is, when you're being interviewed, your job is to make the host look great. That's that's how I look at when you're dealing with big media like Fox News. My job was to make him look good, so I tried to do that, and I think I did. I also was there to make you guys look good, the community look good. I think I did that as well. Some folks said I looked a little bit nervous like in the first minute and then settled down. Let me tell you what happened, because this is kind of an interesting little side story here. I get in there, and I listen to the judge do his first two segments, and I'm the final wrap-up segment. So then they walk me into the studio right after he finishes segment two. We sit down. They put a mic on me, and next thing I know, the judge is reading off a teleprompter for the intro, and then for the rest of that, it's off-the-cuff interviewing and answers. So he's reading the deal, and... The first thing that kind of went, oh, God, what did you just say? He said, he is the face of the modern survival movement. I went, that's a little bit more praise than I think I deserve. But, you know, hey, whatever, their spin, their, their, uh, their, their sizzle. So that was fine. But we did the first two questions. And they cut it. And they came in. Because this was not a live thing. It was taped. And they came in and they said, we can't hear Jack. I said, what do you mean you can't hear me? I'm loud, man. People hear me. I talked to 250 people in a room with no mic. And it turned out that the Mike they had pinned on me, the guy that pinned it on me, pinned it on me upside down. <laughs> so I was talking into the butt end of the little mini mic. So they're very directional to keep side noises out and things like that, so they really couldn't hear me. So the first two questions I was answering for the second time, and I had nailed them, and I didn't want to leave anything out that I had already got in. And, of course, you're also thinking, what else should I have put in there? So if that had not happened, I don't think I would have even looked a little nervous there because, honestly, it was very comfortable working with the judge. Um, the next thing people asked, did I get to hang out with him at all? I got to speak to him briefly. My wife took some pictures of us together. They allowed her to do that. I'll be posting those probably not till this weekend when I get a chance to do that. And I uh, did get to talk to him for about two or three minutes and he said, I gotta run, I got another uh, thing to do, and we went and got on the elevator, who jumps on the elevator with us but the judge, he's going down to floor one so we rode down the floor uh, to floor one with him from 14 and we talked to him a little bit more, and there were other people in the elevator that wanted to talk to him too, so I didn't want him to monopolize his time, I talked to the producer at length, and they are going to have me back on in the future so, all in all, it went really good, and I want to thank you guys so much for your help but that's what I'm saying. I need second level of help here. I want as many positive comments on that uh, on their blog on Freedom Watch on Fox uh, as possible. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Please let them know that you appreciate it. It'll go a long way toward our relationship with the media. And I'll tell you what. I've had a few people email me. I can't believe you're getting caught up in the hype with Fox News. Get you to kill for the Republican. Whatever. All right. Every individual is his own man. And are there some people on Fox that I would consider shills for Republicans? You bet your butt there is. All right? You bet. I don't think this guy's a shill for anybody. 
The man looked me in the eye and told me, this is important, the things that you're doing, and people need to know these things, and people need to hear this, and we'll have you back on. Hey, man gives me his word, especially a man of that stature that's not required to. And I've been through other interviews in other worlds with, with some people that are you know up on that level, and most of the time, as soon as the interview's done, they're gone and they never speak to you. All right, so this guy's genuine. I like what he's doing. I like what he's saying, and I want to help him. And fortunately, it looks like he's willing to do a little bit to help me, and that will go a long way. So please do that for me. All right, let's get on to um, some of your questions today, the real meat and potatoes of the show. Just wanted to give you a little review of what that was like. Uh, oh, one more thing. I actually ran into John Stossel. We got off the elevators, and there was nobody up there to meet us. And John Stossel was there with a couple people. And he said, these folks look lost. Somebody give them some help. And uh, we said, thank you. And that was about our, uh, our, our 10 seconds of fame with John Stossel. Not sure what he was doing there, because Stossel's with uh, NBC. Um, but this was the News Corp Fox building, so who knows? Anyway, it was cool to see him as well. Now, getting into your questions. Um, somebody asked a great question. Uh, it ties right into this trip, so I'll lead off with it. It said, "Is uh, what's my modern survivalist take on New York City? And he also said that when he had to deal with people from New York City, specifically on the phone, that they always seem to be in a hurry and rude. Those are two different things. Let me break them apart into two different things. Let's talk about it first from a survivalist viewpoint. I can tell you this. If we have a major, talking major shit hit the fan, I don't want to be anywhere near that place. It is a powder keg in that situation. It's balanced precariously on stability, but they are so dependent on so many things that are not on that island that if supplies stop coming in or garbage stops going out, it will be a disaster within about three to four days. Now, let me tell you the other side of this. Um, With 9-11 and with the big giant power outage that went on in New York City um, uh, about a year later, and I was actually part of the power outage. I was traveling back then. I was in New York City. The power went out. What I can tell you, what I've seen of the New York York City, the uh, post-Rudy Giuliani New York City, is a city that has a lot of pride in itself. And it may be the most stable big city during a localized city-level disaster in the world today because of the people that are there. And I'll talk more about that rude stereotype here in a second. And I mean that. I'm being genuine. It's not just because I just came back from there. I went there a lot. And when the first time I went there, my whole view of New York City and its people changed for me because of how helpful people were. And I mean that. They really were. And what I saw in the orderly um, way that people walked off the island during the power outage, what we all saw when it was televised with with people handling 9-11, is that in New York City, when something goes wrong, the people pull together. That's great. And I think that they can weather, like I said, the localized disaster that has outside help as well as just about any city. I would rather be in New York City at a localized disaster level than Los Angeles. I mean that as well. I really do. I think that uh, the New York City of the 1970s that's in a lot of movies that might be your stereotype of the city is not the New York City of 2009. 
If you if, if you want to really learn something about the history of the, the country and, and, and really feel the beginning of this country, go to New York City. Spend some time there. Go down to the World Trade Center and uh, and remember what it was like and see what's being done down there. It's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm kind of pissed that it's still a hole in the ground. I think they should be further along by now, and politicians get to blame for that, but um, it's, it's really pretty amazing. But the big thing you need to do is go to St. Paul's Cathedral, which was the, known as the chapel that stood, that was right across the street, that was left undamaged, just covered in dust, where the rescue workers spent so much of their time when they were resting, and so many volunteers came and helped the rescue workers. And when you go in that church, you'll be moved by everything that was done in response to, uh, to 9-11, but I'll tell you what else you can do. You can walk over and look at the pew and the very chair um, that George Washington came to that church to pray in, and that church is the, is the church where Washington was sworn in as our first president. If for no other reason, it's worth going to New York City for that. So I think they can handle the regional disaster, but just the garbage alone, um, if we have like a national level or like a northeast level regional disaster, bigger than just the city, where help is not in New Jersey and northern New York and, and down and, you know, just coming in and helping them out, I, I think it would be a downward spiral. I wouldn't want to be anything here. The rude attitude stuff. When you're in New York City, you are always in a rush because there are so many people. And they move at a different speed. And if you're from a different part of the country, you will perceive that as extremely rude. It is not rude. What they consider rude in New York City is you trying to be polite to everybody and blocking the flow of human and or vehicle traffic. Believe it or not, that they want speed because it's necessary when 8 million people are on one island. That's, that's the first part of the rude thing. The second part of the rude thing is a lot of the people that you talk to that are that sound like they're from New York City, that sound like the typical rude-ass, I mean really rude New Yorker, they're from East Jersey. And I'm sorry if you're from there, but people from Newark, Hoboken, that area, a lot of them are just rude people. I don't know why, but they are. It's almost like they think they're a New Yorker, and they think that's the way a New Yorker is supposed to act. But most of what I've seen, people that live and work in the city, are extremely helpful people. I know it sounds crazy. Go there, ask for help when you're getting on a subway, and you'll see what I mean. Twenty people will break their neck to tell you what train to get on, and they won't send you to Brooklyn in it. <laughs> Last, and I think this is very important, a lot of times people go to New York City, they're walking around the streets, and they're thinking how rude everybody is the way they're cutting people off and walking in front of people and everything. Part of it is what I already said. People got to get, get to point A to point B. But the other thing you have to remember is half the people you're looking at are not from New York. Half the people you look at are tourists, just like you. They don't understand the area, and they're creating confusion amid order and chaos, where these people know where they're going, know what street, know how to read the lights, know how to do everything, and you got tourists walking around with cameras, walking backwards through crowds and things like that. That creates a lot of uh, perception of rudeness is really what I think it is. The other thing you got there, you got a lot of people that are over there from Europe, and... Uh, they just behave differently. I'm not going to say it's wrong. People from New York behave differently than people from Texas. Now you add into that mix people from Europe that have different mannerisms and what's considered rude and what's considered polite. You put all that in one place, and if you're not used to it, it looks very chaotic and very rude. But the reality is it's a very well-run and ordered city for the size. It's unbelievable, uh, for especially an old city uh, with uh, all those small streets, how well things work there. So that's a long answer, but, hey, I wanted to. Uh, 
uh, to really cover that one. Um, let's go to another question. Guy asked me today, is uh, is making biodiesel worth it? Is it worth investing in the equipment and the chemicals and going out and getting the oil and everything? Well, it's not something I know a lot about. But I just read an article in the new Popular Mechanics about making biodiesel at home. And uh, it opened my eyes to a few things. It's a bit more complex of a uh, an issue than I thought it was. There's some more steps involved and more chemicals involved than I thought there was. And uh, it takes quite a bit of time and quite a bit of effort. So, so there's you know kind of one thing to think about. It's just how much time and effort you're willing to put into it. Two, the days that you could go to like your your local eateries and get cooking oil uh, for free are almost over. Most of the time now, and it fluctuates right with the price of diesel fuel. Uh, the guy that wrote the article said he pays between forty to eighty cents a gallon. Plus, you got to pay for the chemicals for the oil. Plus his time and effort. Next, he said that his first steps at making biodiesel involved building kind of one of the DIY do-it-yourself biodiesel stills. And it was affordable to do, but he screwed up two fuel pumps um, with bad batches. So you would really be better off getting a really old diesel truck with the old-style engines and using that uh, because they're more forgiving, or buying kind of a professional still kit uh, to make biodiesel, with, which can cost up to $3,000 or more. So you got a very long payback time if you have that initial investment of $3,000. My view is from a sustainability, self-sufficiency standpoint, you're not really that much better off as a biodiesel maker then you are buying diesel from a store. Because if the shit hits the fan, right, it's going to be just as difficult to go out and get cooking oil, maybe more difficult to get cooking oil, than it is to get diesel fuel. And eventually both of those commodities will really be extremely valuable and really hard to come by. So it's really more of a day-to-day keeping your cost down if you want to do it. If you don't drive a lot and you can make, you know, it all depends. Like you said, do you want to, the guy that wrote the article said, do you want to spend every Saturday, you know, sweating and burning away at your still making biodiesel? And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I was always thinking about doing it someday. And after reading this article, which was supposed to encourage me to do it, 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 it kind of talked me out of it. Now, I know the Gervaisers do it. Um, but they don't work day jobs. They have their little micro farm. That's their entire business. They're just there. They're going to the places anyway. They already have the relationships with the uh, the eateries and the restaurants because they're selling to them. They probably are bartering for it. They're not paying for it. So it makes perfect sense for, for people in that kind of mode to do it. So it's really about your lifestyle and how it fits in with it. Then the other thing is, and I never thought about this, but he said that you know buying oil or even getting it for free from, like, the low-end dive joint eateries is not good. Oil gets used for various lengths of time, often too long, a lot more particulate matter in it. It's been burned a lot more, things like that. Really, you need to find good quality restaurants that change their oil the same time every day, period. That have, like, a general rotation schedule and use high-quality oil to start out with, and that's why you're going to be paying 40 to 80 cents uh, a gallon for it today. So... I don't know. Now, I did want to give you one little tidbit here. This is not at all, not at all, not at all a suggestion to do anything illegal and violate federal law. But it just made me think of this, that it's something you should know about if, for any reason, you ever are in a true emergency or a total shit hit the fan, it would be good to know this. There is a type of diesel fuel known as off-road diesel fuel. 
it is red when you look at it because they dye it red. Other than that, it ain't much different than plain old diesel fuel. It'll go into any diesel engine and it'll run it. It sells for a lot less than uh, conventional diesel fuel because it doesn't have the uh, the taxes placed on it that on-the-road diesel fuel does. So what's its purpose? Its purpose is, when I used to work construction, we had a couple cat um, backhoes. And uh, those backhoes ran on diesel. Well, they didn't drive on roads. They didn't have license plates. They didn't go on highways. They were off-road vehicles. So we bought that fuel for them. And I think back then diesel was selling for around a buck forty um, a gallon. So it was a lot less than it is today. But we were paying in the sixty cent range for our off-road diesel. And we had the thing looked like a um, looked like a toolbox in the back of the truck, but it wasn't a toolbox. It was a 100-gallon diesel tank with a pump and a crank. And we would fill that and then we would pump into our various construction vehicles. We had a diesel vehicle run out of fuel one time. Really something we should have done, but you know what? It was either stuck or not, so we pumped a gallon of that stuff in there, fired right up, drove it down to uh, to the gas station, and got a full tank for it. If you get caught putting that stuff in your vehicle, it is a very, very, very bad day for you. It is highly illegal, and it is a violation of federal law. I'm telling you this the way I would tell you to you know, use bubble gum to plug a radiator. It ain't a good idea, but when it's life and death, don't think you can't use it. That would be good to know. Or... If we were standing at the abyss of a total collapse of society and you could get your hands on that stuff, it would be worth doing. That's why I'm telling you that. Let's go on to uh, the next question. Um, Guy says, what's the difference between compost and manure? And he means mainly as a fertilizer value. Which one is better or are they better or is there any real difference? There definitely is differences. And there's differences from manure to manure to manure. Um, In other words, there's a big difference between using chicken manure or using hog manure or using cow manure or goat manure or rabbit manure as a uh, fertilizer because they have different diets. They eat different things. They have different digestive systems. They leave different things behind. They have different nutrient values. So the answer is there's always a difference Whenever you could have compost made out of mostly oak leaves, straw, and glass grass clippings, or you could have compost made out of mostly kitchen waste, and they're going to have decidedly different um, nutrient value profiles and uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium uh, profiles as well. So. They are different, but I think they're all good, and that's the most important thing to understand. You can use any of them, and the best thing is to use mixtures of them. The other thing you need to know when you're using manure, if you have a source of manure that's that's you know fresh manure, a, a, a farmer friend that will let you come haul some cow manure away, or if you have chicken coops and you're using chicken manure, um, most manures are what they call hot manures. And what that means is if you throw the manure... Um, uncomposted down onto your plants it's the nitrogen so high and during the breakdown process the heat that builds up they'll, they'll scorch your plants they'll burn the roots they'll burn leaves and uh, they'll actually instead of help your plant grow uh, initially they'll destroy your plants so any kind of manure that you're going to use needs to be composted anyway so then you're down to compost versus composted manure I say put the two together you'll get a lot better breakdown action you guys with backyard compost bins occasionally get your hands on some manure. Uh, not literally, right? Don't play with it or anything, but get some manure, put it in your compost, and you'll get a much better finished product. So the two really work symbiotically uh, very well. Now, the one manure that you can use just straight into your garden is rabbit manure. 
and it makes it worth keeping a couple rabbits, even if you don't keep them for meat. Just for the, they produce an amazing amount of manure. A lot of people would be more comfortable with them than they would be chickens. A couple rabbit hutches in the backyard don't take up much space. Cool animals, very pleasant personalities, uh, don't require too much attention. Will eat a lot of that leafy green waste. Produce high quality manure that doesn't need to be composted. So the difference is there. It's not really worth worrying about. But make sure your hot manure is your composting, and the best thing you can be doing is combining the two organic sources into compost together. Uh, let's go to the next question. Um, guy says, uh, "What's a good place to learn permaculture in Texas?" Uh, I have two answers for that. One, I'm going to give you a couple resources here in Texas that I think might be able to help you. One is called the Austin Permaculture Guild and I'll post a link to their website in the show notes and I think they can direct you to some places and maybe not so much courses but people that are have permaculture systems set up that allow access to fellow members of the guild and uh, that might be a good site to check out and dig into. And the other one is called Firmaculture and uh, they are down near Fredericksburg, I believe. Um, I could be wrong about that. Uh, or maybe Kerrville, but in, in somewhere around in that area. And uh, they do do courses, I think, a couple times a year. I think they have one coming up in October. Now, if you're from North Texas and you're going to a permaculture course at the edge of the uh, West Texas desert, plants are going to be a little bit different and, and things like that. But, but that's part of what I wanted to expand on this question with. Understand with permaculture, it's not about you plant variety A, B, C, D, E and F, and that's what's right for your area. It's about making sure that you're using the principles of permaculture, seven layers, five zones, right, Uh, 12 principles, and using those and incorporating them into your entire design scheme. And that brings me to my bigger thing. It's it's great to take a permaculture course. Midwest permaculture uh, up in the center of the country offers a pretty good course. It's not in Texas. You'd have to travel a bit. But if you're from North Texas, um, it, they're probably going to be more likely to be able to give you similar plant varieties because that does help some, even though the other thing I just said. Um, so you might want to consider those guys, even if you have to travel. It's not inexpensive to take quality permaculture certification level courses. It, it, it is expensive. It, it, it's quite expensive. And that's because it's a, it's a very rare skill that people um, that teach the courses have been doing long enough. You can't just go, get certified, and then start teaching courses and certifying others. Certification is a first step in that process. And the guy that would be teaching you in any place that's truly certified to certify um, has a great deal of experience in design in different climates, uh, with different plant structures and, and things like that, and uh, would probably be worth the money if you're going to make it part of the rest of your life, right? Just like firearms training isn't cheap, but you sure as heck don't want cheap training when it comes to something that's going to sustain your life, be it with a weapon for protection or putting together a system that's going to provide food for you for the rest of your life, which is done right what permaculture is really all about. Uh, the next thing, though, I want to tell you is you don't need to be certified. You don't need to take any courses. Honestly, you don't. You should, but you really don't even need to read any books. Permaculture itself was created by one guy, Bill Mollison, and it was done strictly by observation, interaction, and then taking feedback and changing things and continuing to work with things. And I will watch the... Uh, 
Permaculture Visionaries, which is a, a video, I'll try to put a link to that as well, that I think you should watch, where Bill Mollison goes and sees what some of his students are up to in places like Africa. And what he says is some of these people here in these little little desert villages in Africa, that one of my students taught them, or one of my students taught a student that taught them, uh, and they've been doing this for a couple of years now in their local area, know as much or more than I do about what they're doing. Because they've adapted it to their local climate. There's no way I can know everybody's local climate. So the creator himself will stand in awe of a two-year student who actually is physically active in his climate. And I remember he came up and he looked at what they call a guild. And a guild in permaculture is an interplanting group of plants in a clump that's designed to sustain each other. A legume for nitrogen, a plant that uses the legume's nitrogen, a plant that provides mulch back to the system. The whole concept of that, you know, even a mini, miniature microcosm of a seven-layer system there. And he was looking at one of the guilds that this this guy had put together, you know, and uh, he said, I've never seen this before. I've never seen half the plants in this guild before. And this guy's been all over the world. So what that tells you is it's more important that you get active and start to try to do things and learn from your failure as much as your success. What Mollison says is we love mistakes and we love failures because they quickly teach us what not to do and it's easy to plant something else. So just get on with it, uh, is his words. So I like the idea of taking courses, but I also want you to understand that even with a course, it's going to be more about eventually what you do. A course just might help you shortcut a lot of those mistakes. And if you're interested in eventually becoming a certified teacher, it's, it's a required first step to be able to do that or to become a registered designer or anything like that. Um, Next question. A lot of gardening questions today. Can I grow eucalyptus trees in Texas? The answer is yes in about 90% of the state. Uh, eucalyptus grows in zone 8, 9, and 10. Now, the reason I answer this question on the air instead of with a quick email, because this really is a very specific Texas question if I just do it that way, is I want to help people make their own decisions about stuff like this and learn and try to push envelopes a little bit and see if I can make 8 grow in 7, right? Or can I make a 7 zone plant grow in 6? How far can I push that? So I want to talk about first, how do you determine whether you can grow something? How do you answer that question for yourself? Well, the first thing you do is you go to Google and you type in something like eucalyptus USDA zone. And it'll, you'll find a result on that first page. It'll tell you, I guarantee you, um, what zones that that plant, and it could be lemons zone, olives zone, citrus fruits zone. It could be bananas. It could be, you know, avocados. It could be lettuce. It could be radishes. You get the point. It doesn't matter. If you type that in, you're going to find websites that are going to tell you what zone that plant is rated for. And... Um, You'll often be able to start looking at different varieties from there and, and go further out in your search and find varieties that are more. So you might put kiwi zone and find that there are kiwis that are good down to zone 6, but there are special kiwis, arctic kiwis, that are good down to zone 3. So you can help you find varieties. So what you do if you want to grow eucalyptus or anything, you find the most cold-hardy variety if that's your challenge, going to the cold, or the most heat-tolerant uh, uh, variety if your challenge is going the other way with your zone, and you start with that variety. 
that gives you a good starting point. Then you do things to accommodate the plant. So if I was going to plant a eucalyptus in the northern part of zone 8, getting close to where they say it won't work anymore, or in the southern part of zone 7 and trying to make it work, some of the things I would do, I would make sure it's definitely on a south-facing side of the property so it gets maximum solar exposure. Especially when the tree is young, I would probably ring it with a lot of rocks, or if I could find a place kind of like with a rock outcropping behind it that will reflect heat, or, or maybe a pond that would reflect heat. I would do whatever I could to get as much reflective heat and as mo- most ground-sunk heat retained around it as possible. And if you do that, it's amazing what you can do. I watched one film where a guy that's up in um, I think the Italian Alps or something like that, he's way up. This guy's at like two miles or a mile and a half elevation or something like that. It's crazy. And uh, he's growing lemons. And it's exactly what he's doing. He's using a combination of rock outcropping to reflect and retain heat and pond reflection to, to reflect and, and direct heat. This guy's got lemons growing up on the mountains and he doesn't lose them to the frost and it snows there. So it's amazing what can be done if you'll try to push things. But start out with the most hardy variety you can for your zone or for one zone away from you and then do things you can to accommodate. If you're going into the heat, then use shade. Plant things where they get enough solar exposure to get enough sunlight, but see what you can do to minimize the heat during the summer uh, for them. So a lot of times you look at the angle of the sun, and the sun takes one path in the summer and another path in the winter, and you can do things so it gets pretty good solar exposure in the spring and fall, but during the heat of the summer, maybe it's shaded by other plants or other structures. If you start thinking that way, you'll be able to, again, push that design envelope and push the species variety envelope in many different regions and zones. Uh, on the original question, if you want to know why the guy wanted to grow eucalyptus, or the lady, I'm not sure, didn't identify whether it was male or female. No name, I don't remember anyway. Um, Medicinal uses. Uh, eucalyptus has a lot of medicinal uses. It's a great medicinal plant. And the further north you can grow it, the better. So if anybody's grown eucalyptus where it supposedly can't be done, let me know. I'd like to know what you did, how you did it, what variety you used. That'll help our original question. And it'll help give examples, real world, of how people are doing some of these things. Going on from there... Uh, Everybody seemed to love my interview with Barb Harrington. And if you're just a regular person out there, and you, but you're doing some of this stuff and you'd like to come on, hopefully that will inspire you and maybe you'll put your hand up and do it. Let me say, before I go to the question, there's a few people that have expressed an interest in interviews. I'll be getting in touch with you within the next week and a half. Um, just totally slam busy with going out of town um, so close to each other back to back and and other things like that so I haven't been able to get back to you yet I will be getting back to you we'll try to set up interviews with just about everybody that's asked so far but during that interview Barb was talking about canning milk and um, I said you know that's a great idea and I never really thought about canning milk other than we keep you know, some of the store-bought stuff around. And I probably should do some of that. And if no other reason, so I have cream for my coffee. Um, I've used powdered milk to uh, cream my coffee, and that works pretty good. We always keep, you know, even with some extra powdered milk stored away for you know, long-term storage, we always keep a little box of it or a little container of it um, 
in the cabinet. And if we ever have, like, because I don't go to the grocery store every week like most people do, right? Because I have food stores. I don't have to. So milk has a shelf life. So a lot of times the milk will be gone. And uh, if I don't feel like running down to 7-Eleven to get some milk on a Saturday, but I want a cup of coffee, uh, usually Friday night I'll mix up some uh, powdered milk because it's good if it sits in the refrigerator overnight. And powdered milk's not the greatest stuff for drinking, but, hey, creams coffee just fine. Well, this guy wants powdered half and half, but not non-dairy creamer. I don't know if that exists. I, I really don't think it does. If anybody knows of a product like that, let me know. But I was thinking, I bet you can can cream. I bet it will come out quite a bit thicker than typical um, milk or, or typical cream, but I bet it can be done. I don't know that. I don't know if it's going to foam up or boil over or what have you or turn into you know a block of you know solid cream or what have you, but something tells me it can be done. If nothing else, I know you can can whole milk. And that would at least be a start. The other thing you could consider doing for cream is keeping a little mini cow, right, or a goat, and uh, getting cream off of the milk from your livestock. And then you have a source of milk anyway. And uh, Because, you know, the old days, when the milkman used to come around before milk was homogenized so the cream wouldn't separate, you would get milk, and up at the top would be the cream. And what you would have to do is they'd have these glass bottles, you know, that the milkman would deliver. And you would shake it up before you would pour it out. Most people have never experienced milk like that. So if you wanted cream from milk, whether it was from milk that was delivered or from your own cattle or what have you, um, all you did is let the milk sit let the cream rise to the top and skim it off the top. And that's basically the process for making skim milk. That's what they do. They skim the cream. Or you leave a little bit behind, and then you have, you know, kind of your 2%, that type of thing. So um, those are some ideas I have for you. Never heard of a powdered half-and-half mix. Um, but if nothing else, can some milk. I think that uh, that would be better than not having anything. And the one thing about that is canned milk is thicker and richer um, than milk when you get it out out of the bottle. So I think you'll find it's a very good cream substitute. Not quite half and half, but come on, folks, you're talking about shit in the fan here. Um, Any kind of coffee that's not black, if you're not a black coffee drinker, should be better than... uh, than uh, not having a substitute at all. So there's a couple different things you can do. And uh, on the last note, non-dairy creamer is uh, quite flammable. So uh, I think it tastes like garbage. I hate it. I despise it. I will not use it in my coffee. I will drink black before it. But it might be interesting to have a little bit around. You'd be surprised uh, how much energy is released when black or um, uh, when uh, uh, non-dairy creamer is ignited in the right way. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. You can figure out what to do with it. If you injure yourself out of stupidity, it is not my fault, folks. Don't do things you're not prepared to uh, deal with the consequences of. But I just thought, you know, that's a good, just like red dye diesel will run any motor, it's good to know that non-dairy creamer is uh, highly flammable when when uh, pushed out into a cloud, so, so to speak. Um, next one, guy asked a question. This is not my area of expertise. I am doing some research into it. Probably going to go ahead take my course pretty soon and get certified uh, and get my call sign. But he says, basically, what advantages do ham radio operators have over cell phone users um, in a disaster? Because he would think that if the power was out and the cell phone towers were out, then uh, the uh, ham radio towers would be out as well. Not necessarily so. 
Let's start out, first of all, with the range of a typical ham radio. That's what everybody wants to know. Typically, you can get radio-to-radio range in the area of about 15 miles. That's a pretty good tick, and I can tell you right now that cell phone towers are closer than 15 miles together. What this means is if you were dead center of a 15-mile radius disaster area with a ham radio, and somebody had a tower out 15 miles out that was outside of that disaster area, uh, you could use that tower. So that's that's one thing in of itself. The next thing is with radio to radio communication, um, it's it's really possible to get on and do just straight radio radio, and I get you. And maybe you're still in the disaster area, but you have some of your own backup power. I have some of my own backup power sources, what have you. We can be running these things on 12-volt batteries. You take my message, and you relay it to the next available ham further out, and eventually you get to a point where standard communications are available, and now your message gets to where it needs to go. All right, so just relaying one to the other. And... You know, the other thing is that most of the towers that are out there that people are skipping off of are privately owned. So if the ham operator with a repeater tower happens to have backup power for the the tower, uh, he might only run it a couple hours a day, but he would probably broadcast his times. Um, then you could still use that tower. You can use cloud skipping at even further transmission ranges. You can do uh, a pretty sophisticated technique that I don't know a lot about, but you can actually bounce signals off satellites up in the atmosphere and uh, get global communication without a tower. There are a tremendous amount of things that hams can do, many of which I am not um, experienced enough to speak on yet. I, I do want to get a ham operator on, an experienced hammer operator on, to talk about these types of things a little more, more eloquently than I can. But the other side of this is hams have the option that, that that no one else does without a license, and that is to use shortwave as a form of communication. And going down into shortwave bands, you can greatly extend your communications uh, just by doing that. Now, not a lot of them are doing that today because of other means that are out there, including using the Internet to extend communication ranges. Uh, But there's just so much flexibility with HAM, including going back to using old standard Morse code, um, that I think it gives so many advantages that I'm probably not even naming. But just know, is it better than a cell phone in a disaster? Absolutely. A lot of times in a disaster area, it's volunteer hams that come in with equipment, generators and what have you, and set up a couple stations at the outskirts of the disaster area, or even within the disaster area, and begin rebroadcasting and bring communications back to the area before anybody else. I believe they have a motto, something like, when all else fails, or something like that. Um, they are the communicate and, and the authorities rely and use them as well uh, because of that reliability and that flexibility and their willingness to do these things. So I think there's tremendous advantages there. Last question of the day. Guy says uh, he's in his 20s, and his, him and his wife. Um, they paid off all their debt. The only thing they owe money on is, uh, is a house that they're building. And by the time the house is done being built, they'll only owe 50% of what the house costs to build. They have a four-year plan to pay it off. They got some acreage up in, uh, I think, Washington. Washington or, or Oregon, somewhere up in that part of the country. And uh, since his problem is he's starting to mentally drift at work. 
it's hard to stay focused on his job and uh, keep with the plan to get it completed, you know, to kind of get it done and sewn up and have everything paid for and then have more flexibility because he's getting excited about it and he's thinking more about his little piece of property and what he's going to do with it than doing his job. What advice can I give him? First, let me tell you, I've been there. And uh, I understand. And it is difficult. But you're in your 20s. You're in your 20s and you're so close. Part of it just needs to be a four-year plan from now. You're at, at best 32-ish. 30? 30. You're tell me exactly what 20s you're in. But you're somewhere in that range. And that is so young to have that much done. Part of you just needs to put down the shoulder to the grindstone and do whatever needs to be done because it's worth it because you won't be doing it when you're 65. So keeping that thought in your head. Two, turn around the drifting to a positive influence. Go ahead and put a picture of your, your, your location on your desktop as a wallpaper. And when you look at it, don't think, I wish I was there. Think, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Make it more of the kind of your own carrot. And the other thing is, I don't know what kind of money you're making. If you're making really good money, and it sounds like you must be if you've done all this, and you've got a really good job, then you may need to stick to what you're doing. If you're just making okay money, and you have the ability to move around job to job and continue to make the same amount of money, you might even consider that. Folks, I've had a ton of jobs in 20 years. A ton. Way more than most people. A couple of them were jobs that most people look at and consider dream jobs. But I couldn't stay with them because I have that same issue. And sometimes it's moving around three every three to four years that, that helps you stay focused because now it's new. There's new things to learn. And, and my biggest thing with work has always been, I'll work. I'll work my ass off for you. I'll do everything I can to help your company and your business do better. I will work harder than everybody next to me and everybody above me and everybody below me. I'll give you my all. I want to be paid fairly. That's a given. But most importantly, I need to be learning something. If I'm not learning, it's time for me to look for something new. So that's the big thing. What are you learning at your job? What pro- you know? Maybe it's not a move. Maybe it's can you take on a new project that will teach you something, that will allow you to interact with more people, that will give you a bigger network, whatever. But make sure you're learning from you. That's not just for this guy. That's for everybody. Make sure you're learning with your work. It's far more valuable than your paycheck. And sometimes it involves a little bit of a financial step backward to go somewhere where you can learn a new skill. What you learn, especially when you're young, and I'm talking to you teenagers down, you early 20s, what you learn is so much more important than your paycheck. And I know kids that are in that, you know, late teens, early 20s that have been, you know, good to go as far as reliability, working the same job for two or three years. They do it well, they work hard, but they haven't learned anything in a year or two. You need to start looking for something new. And some of you people that are middle-aged may be the same thing. Because that's what keeps you marketable. That keep, that's what keeps you adaptable. And that's what helps your mind continue to develop. We're not done developing our minds when we walk out of high school or college. We need to be developing them through our entire lives. 
And part of the reason that some people have so much misery with work is they've stopped developing themselves mentally at work. So either by finding a different line of work or making a move or finding things you can do at work that other people are not hip on doing, and you decide, hey, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to make this one of my projects. Or talking to a supervisor, looking for advancement, even if it's not a monetary advancement, if it's just a kind of a positional advancement or a lateral move and the different things that you can learn, that's where you need to focus is what can I learn? How do I apply this to the life that I want to live long term? And if the answer for me is I can't anymore, then it's time for me to move on and do something different. It really is. And a lot of the things that I know, folks, especially about business and life and psychology, come from that mentality and making those moves. It's scary sometimes. It's a risk every time you do it, but it is something that you know maybe you need to consider. I don't think the guy that asked this question needs to think about that, but I try to make these questions apply to everybody, and I'll bet you there's some people out there that fit that mold today. It's time for you to find something new. Four years and four years and your house is paid for. Put that picture of your dream house and your dream piece of property in front of you, and every time you start to drift from work, look at that and say, this is what I'm working for. I'm only four years away. And all of a sudden, I'm only three and a half years away. And all of a sudden, I'm only three years away. Make it your guiding light, your guiding force. And hey, if you can have a move up financially or a move up in what you're going to learn, be open to the opportunities that are there. Look for them. The employers right now are not looking for the 20% of people that don't have a job. What they want to do is they see this as a great opportunity to find the 80% that still do it, find real talented people, people that are so valuable they've made it through this time, or people that were valuable that they would have made it through, but their entire company went under. That's The unemployed guy they're looking for is that guy. Why were you? Why'd you lose your last job? I was laid off. That doesn't help. I'm sorry. And I don't want to put anybody down, but that's how the employers are thinking. You say, oh, I was part of a division of 10,000 people that was eliminated. Now I'm going to dig deeper. Now I'm going to find out. But if, you know, you work for a small business and there were 20 people there and they let two go and you were one of them, I'm thinking they trimmed the fat and you were the fat. And that's just, you know, you got to find a way to sell yourself around that. But what I'm telling you, people that are still working right now, there's opportunity for you. Don't let all this gloom and doom about the economy tell you there isn't. There's tremendous opportunity for you right now because people now know that when the fat got trimmed, it wasn't you. And with that, let me go ahead and wrap up. Again, thank you to everybody that helped me get to Freedom Watch with the judge. Please go by and comment. Please thank them for letting me be on there. Uh, subscribe to the judge on iTunes. He's got a show on iTunes, a podcast on iTunes. Make sure you do a review of his show on iTunes if you're an iTunes subscriber. Thank him there in your review for having me on. I really appreciate that if you guys could do that for me. Um, and last but not least, keep on keeping on. On, the, on that last question, folks, it's so important that you know what you're working for, why you're working for, and you're developing yourself as an individual every day and working hard to make your life better every day and be more prepared and more self-sufficient and less dependent every single day. It's what this show is all about. It's why I started it in the first place. It's why I do it every day. Every time I hear somebody tell me we're now debt-free, 
and we did it because we started listening to the Survival Podcast. Or you gave us the last push to get it done, or whatever. I feel so rewarded. What you do for yourself is what's important to me. Because the more people out there that take these steps, that decide, you know what, the hell with conventional wisdom, that's not very, conventional wisdom is not very wise. The hell with people that use ignorance to make themselves happy. I'm going to be enlightened, informed, aware, prepared, but I'm going to stay happy. I'm going to stay happy and optimistic because I'm going to know that I'm in control. And I don't need the deals from the government. I don't need to make the deal with the devil. Liberty is more precious to me than any safety that any government can supposedly offer me. My liberty to choose is what's most important. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off, folks. Again, thank you for all your efforts. Thank you for your help. Thank you for living your life the best way you can. And with that, keep on living that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.